we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. The title of the sermon today is, is um, Sabbath Satisfaction. And uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. This is after Daniel's repentance. While I was speaking and was praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen before in a vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He came and said to me, Daniel, I've now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, a word went out, and I have come to declare it, for you are greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand, from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks, and for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. After the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offering cease, and in their place shall be an abomination that desolates until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. This is not an easy passage, and you can read, as I have, commentary after commentary about what this likely means. I'm going to take a direction through this that is kind of a both-and position. Rather than choosing between the various options that lie before us, I'm, it's going to sound like I'm accepting them all as true. Now, I want to deal first with the 77s. That's how it is more literally in the Hebrew, the 70 weeks. 70 sets of seven. Now that is a, a significant number in the scriptures, seven, for a couple of reasons. First, God created the earth in six days and took a seventh to rest. And for that reason, we have seven days in every week. But this 70 times seven has an interesting history, even outside the law of Moses, which is where we're going to spend most of our time. It first occurs in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, this is in verse 23. Cain's family line in Genesis is full of technology, full of eating from the tree of the knowledge, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And so they're very technologically advanced. But along with that technological advancement also comes a predilection for violence, which was what sent Cain away from Adam and Eve anyway. So this is chapter 4, verse 23. This is one of Cain's descendants. His name is Lamech. He said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. That's literally in the Hebrew, seventy-sevens. So Lamech is misinterpreting what happened with Cain. Cain murdered his brother Abel, and then God sent him out and made him cursed and marked him somehow. 
And Cain was fearful that if he met other people on his journeys, they would kill him when they saw the mark and knew he was a murderer. So God said he would protect Cain and said anyone who kills Cain, God would take vengeance on that person seven times, whatever that means. Well, Lamech interpreted that as meaning that murder got the protection of God. Very strange interpretation. And so he said, if Cain killed his brother for a reason and got seven times God's protection, well, then I killed these people for almost nothing. Doesn't that deserve 70 times, seven times protection? So it's an interesting, we could get really deep into that, but that's the first occurrence of the 77s. And Jesus picks up on that. Next passage is in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus picks up on Lamech's little speech there. And he uses it to help his disciples understand the nature of forgiveness and just how much forgiveness God offers. This is Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Sorry, verse 21, probably. So Peter came to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times. But I tell you, 77 times or 70 times seven. It's 77s, literally. It seems to be calling back to Lamech. Jesus is more or less saying, you need to be as gracious as Lamech was vengeful. But one of the things that's hidden within that is that Jesus expects them to give 77s of grace. Now, we might think it's just a convenient throwback to Lamech, or, or it's just a nice symbolic round number or something like that. But it's more than that, because this goes to Daniel. Jesus is asking them to be as gracious as God is, and that's what the 77s is correlating. In order to understand what seven means for the people of Israel, we already talked about creation. But in the covenant of Moses, it's a little bit more specific than that. Look at Leviticus with me, Leviticus chapter 25. The Lord spoke to Moses, this verse one, on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land that I'm giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath for the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in their yield. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest for the land. You may eat what the land yields during its Sabbath. You, your male and female slaves, your hired and your bound laborers who live with you, for your livestock also, and for the wild animals in your land, all its yield shall be for food. So every seventh year, they were not to work their fields. They were to give it a Sabbath rest. And whatever naturally grew, they could eat and they could use to feed their animals. But they were not to plow or sow or reap. Think they did it? No, they didn't do it. How do I know? Daniel is how I know. We'll get there, though, in a minute. Jeremiah is how I know. Um, but in any case, every seventh year, they were to give the land a Sabbath. So every seventh day, humans got a Sabbath and animals. Every seventh year, the land got a Sabbath. And it doesn't end there. Verse eight, you shall count off seven weeks of years, 
seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the 50th year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of Jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property. When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the Jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price. And if the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price for it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God for I am the Lord, your God. Now, um, we could read the whole rest of the chapter to figure out everything that's going on with the year of Jubilee. They're also supposed to give all land that's been purchased back to the original family so that they won't be left without a remnant on the earth. They're to cancel all debts. Um, so any kind of loans or anything like that that have been given out, they are to be canceled in the year of Jubilee. So it's an amazing year. Um, and that is a Sabbath. This was in the end an act of faith. This is not going to work by a natural cycle of life on earth. They were going to need God to be there. And that was the faith Israel found very difficult. How does this relate to Daniel? Well, there are all three of these cycles are reflected in what Gabriel says to Daniel and what Daniel was living himself. So you can go back to Daniel 9 if you want to. But the first thing is the reason the people were in exile for 70 years, the reason God chose that number 70 is because there had been 70 year-long Sabbaths that they had failed to give the land its rest. That, If you add that up, that's just about the whole history of the monarchy in Israel. And so... God says to them that he is going to give the land the 70 Sabbath rest they refuse to give it. So that's the 70. That's what puts us to where we are with Daniel. Those 70 years have expired. And now Daniel wants um, to know if they can go back. And he begins to repent of all the sins that sent them there. But it's a Sabbath sin. And that's why the prophets make such a huge deal of the Sabbath. Now, the second, and this is we're going to have to get back to Daniel 9 for what Gabriel is telling him about what goes ahead of this. And it's still filled with Sabbath. What are the 77s? That's where we're headed. 70 weeks is verse 24, Daniel 9. 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointing, anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. There are about 490 years, uh, about 77, 70 weeks, 70 years between the coming of, of Babylon and um, the re revolt of the Maccabees when Israel gets 
back its its land. Now it's not exact, uh, but it's right within there. About 137 BC, um, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who is a king, a Greek king, takes over the temple, puts an idol in the sanctuary, and the people of his day read that something like the abomination that causes desolation. There's a revolt of the Maccabees. They rule for a few years, uh, and then they're defeated. And then um, there is a war between two Greek kings of the south where they go into a civil war against each other, and that sets Judah free in about 115 BC. That's right about on the exact year that is predicted from the time that, that they went into exile to this revolt and Judah is free for a period of time. It's just about perfects. And I would say that if this is all that was ever said about this, this would be history. It's called the preterist view. This would be history. And I do think from Daniel's vantage point, this is predicting Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabean revolt, and it, it's giving a near fulfillment. But according to Jesus, it doesn't end here. Look with me at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. I'm actually going to read quite a bit of this. But what's happening here is uh, Jesus' disciples are really impressed with the temple. And Jesus says, um, I tell you the truth, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And that terrifies them. They associated immediately with the coming of the Son of Man, which is a Daniel image. And this is Jesus' response to them. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when this will be, when the temple will be destroyed is what they're asking about. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, beware that no one leads you astray. Beware that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one. I am the king or the ruler who will rescue you. I will bring peace. That, that's what Messiah means. And they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Verse 9, then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Well, that was yet in the future for them. And we know from our vantage point that does in fact happen. Then many will fall away and they'll betray one another and hate one another. And many, now it was false messiahs he talked about before, false leaders, kings. But now many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many, the chesed, the loyalty, the faithfulness of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this good news of the kingdom which Jesus was teaching them, will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations, to all the Gentiles, and then the end will come. Verse 15, this is the callback to Daniel that makes us realize that Jesus is affirming that what Daniel saw was not finished at the end of the BC era, but it still was continuing. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. <laughs> Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
The one on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or in a Sabbath. For at that time, there will be great suffering, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets, they've come together now, will appear and produce great signs and omens. They'll do miracles to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, these predictions of Jesus that tell us that Daniel's vision was not quite exhausted by his day, for Jesus points us back to it, are going to be fulfilled pretty early on in the history of the church in two events. In 70 AD, like from 67 to 70, something like that, historians can give you the exact dates, the Jewish people revolt against the Romans. And that brings the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But then, about 135 AD, a false messiah rises up. His name is Bar Kokhba, and it's in response, and I think it's the emperor Tatian, but you can do some research. Um, but in any case, uh, one of the generals takes over Jerusalem and rebuilds a temple on the spot of the destroyed temple. He rebuilds on top of it and sets up a shrine to a false god. Well, they interpret that as a desolating sacrilege. And Bar Kokhba brings a rebellion and they attack Rome. And that one is devastating. The Romans absolutely obliterate the revolters. They destroy the city of Jerusalem and they outlaw the practice of Judaism in Israel. So, so those two events, some people think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and then the destruction of all of Jerusalem in 135. And it, he is, there's no question that what Jesus says here and what Daniel said then is repeating itself through history. I mean, it happened with Antiochus, it happened in 70, happened again in 135. So is that the end? Well, there's a break here with Jesus. Then we move on to verse 29, as though there might be a space between those events and the coming of the Son of Man, which we have absolutely experienced. So look at verse 29. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as in the days of Noah, 
So as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. So the way Jesus describes this fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, as far as I can tell, is that all of this would happen, which we see in history now, destruction in 70 and in 135, the persecution of the apostles, the death, the betrayals, the almost wiping out of Christianity, all those things that happen that he predicts were. But then he says immediately afterwards, and you might think, well, immediately. That means like right there. Well, you know, immediately, if you've read the gospel of Mark, doesn't mean necessarily right afterwards, but it means that these events precipitate what's next. This is what follows the coming of the son of man. But he sets us up to know it's going to be a long time because he says it's going to be like in the days of Noah, where everybody's caught off guard. If it happened immediately upon the destruction of Jerusalem, nobody would be caught off guard. So there's obviously a period of time. And then you say, right, some do. I don't know if you're reading that break right, because doesn't he say this generation will not pass away? Well, how do you interpret the word generation? You're thinking like a span of years, like 40 years, 70 years. Well, that's not what the word means. The Greek word is genea, genea, and this is in verse 34, and genea means a race or a people. It can refer to the firstborn, the generation of your body, can be can, your issue. So it, it's not talking about a span of years. It's not saying those of you listening to me right now will not pass away. What it means is one of two things, maybe both. Either he means the race of Israel will exist until that final day, or he means the church that he's establishing, what we might call true Israel, those who have faith not only in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also in Jesus, who are the same, that they will not pass away, that they will last until the end. And interestingly enough, both Jewish Judaism and Christianity are still around, which you think is what he's saying. He won't allow them to be wiped out before the end. So that's the generation thing. And then he warns us, even though you can know with certainty these other things, you will not know the day I'm coming until you see the sign of the Son of Man, which is literally the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And it's going to catch people off guard. So... Here we see Jesus understanding that Daniel foresaw the destruction of Jerusalem and the revolt of the Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes, 137 BC. He saw um, the destruction of the temple. These things were historically conflated for him in 70 AD, and he saw the destruction of Jerusalem in 135. These things are what he's predicting. So what about these 77s? Well, this is the interesting thing. Jesus still insists that there's more to come. And how does Daniel's vision accommodate that? Well, he accommodates it with the 77s. Those 77s may very well be Jubilee sevens. We already talked about the fulfillment of the 70 Sabbath sevens. This sounds like Jubilee. 
And it's very interesting, the language. Look back at Daniel chapter 9. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, that has several meanings. Seventy-sevens are the 70 years that they were in exile. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, it certainly does atone for their sin for those 70 years, but it doesn't do the rest. So then there are 77s, 490 of these things. And that leads to the revolts of Antiochus Epiphanes almost literally, and then figuratively to the Jewish revolts in 70 and in 135, where the abomination that causes desolation there uh, all happens all over again. But still, everlasting righteousness is not here. It's not put an end to prophet and prophecy. It has not brought the kingdom of God. It's still yet to come. Well, the only image here left are years of Jubilee. And so what may be happening is that Daniel is suggesting, or at least Gabriel is suggesting to Daniel, so the book of Daniel is suggesting, that from the, God, from the day God gave the law to Israel at Sinai, to the end of Daniel's prophecy is 3,500 years. Now, the Bible says that the date of the giving of the law was 1446 BC. That's what the Bible says if you add up the dates. And that puts us in 2054. 2054 is 3,500 years from that day. Now, critical scholars say that the date of the Exodus was 1290. Now, that's not what the Bible says about itself, but that's what critical scholars say. And obviously, that's going to add. Uh, 150 years or so to that number. But if what's being said here is all of the above, seven years of exile, the years to Antiochus Epiphanes, the years to the destruction of the temple that Jesus prophesies and rekindles this prophecy and indicates that we're going to see more of this repeated in history, 70, 135, and then there's a final fulfillment in which all the years of Jubilee are being played out. That the reason the year of Jubilee was put in the law of Moses is for all the good benefits that come from it, but also to mark time. If these are Jubilee cycles that have been given to the people of the earth to do away with sin, then 2054 is about the earliest that we could see Daniel's prophecy terminating. I think that's about the earliest. It could be later. So why talk about all this? Well, I want you to first see how consistent God is. And I want you to see that these numbers are not hidden mystery numbers. They're right out there in front of the text. Seven is the days of creation. And it, it gets repeated over and over again. Every seventh day, we rest in faith in God. Every seventh year, we rest in faith in God. And every seventh, 70, you know, seventh seven, every 50th year. We rest in God. 
and we allow all debts to be canceled. This is all pictures of what Jesus does for us on the cross. This is all about the forgiveness of people. It's all about the atoning. Jubilee is about the atoning for all the bad decisions that have been made in the previous 50 years. And it sounds to me like Daniel or Gabriel is telling Daniel that 70 of those cycles of forgiveness and reclamation and the wiping away of sin and God's largesse has been given to the people of the earth. 3,500 years is what he's giving us. And it correlates with how much grace Lamech thought he was deserved and how much mercy Jesus told the disciples they should be willing to give, that they should reflect the mercy of God. They should forgive their brother 70 times seven if God is giving 70 jubilees to the people of the earth. So it seems to me all that ties together to suggest that Jesus knew there would be a long gap between the near fulfillment of the abomination that causes desolation and the true fulfillment of the 77s of Daniel. And we are very near, as far as I can tell, the end of what Daniel saw. Now, what comes after that? We don't know. So this is Daniel chapter nine. I think this is what Gabriel is telling him. Now, Daniel's confused by this. Daniel doesn't understand it. That Where we finished in verse 27 is that's the end. He's going to get another vision in chapter nine, I mean, in chapter 10. And that's what we will talk about next week, the next vision. So what can you take away from this? Well, first, God is consistent. He always does things the same. Secondly, Sabbath matters to God. He not only created in seven days, but he has oriented the time scale of humanity on earth by these cycles. And so the people of Israel were to live in small measure, the graciousness of God in large measure. And that becomes such a powerful teaching that when his disciples ask him, when they ask Jesus, well, how gracious should we be when people sin against us? He throws us back to Daniel 77s and to Lamech's claim that he deserves 70 times seven judgment and protection. But that highlights the fact that Jesus and the first century people may have believed that the 77s was the span of God's graciousness, that that's what Gabriel was saying to Daniel. And if that's the case, then we are so much nearer the end of God's grace than we thought. It's still, I mean, 2050s is still a distance out. There are many of us alive today who won't be here then. But that seems to be the span of God's grace. What are you going to do with that? I hope you'll do this. Pay attention. When the abomination that causes desolation is set up in the holy place, when idols populate the place set apart for the worship of God, flee.